Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Well, I have the expectation of building what is already a very strong partnership between Britain and India, and I think we can make it stronger and deeper. And uh, we're going to be looking at all the aspects of the relationship from business and commerce and industry, but also cultural exchanges, looking forward to the Commonwealth Games, which I'm sure will be a great success for India, and building the very strong relations there are between our two countries, but also our two peoples as well. That was the British Prime Minister David Cameron speaking at the Presidential Palace in Delhi this morning on a trip planned to strengthen the economic and cultural ties between the UK and India. We'll be talking about whether the trip has been a success in this week's World Weekly with me, Tom O'Sullivan. Also in the show, as preparations for the general election in Rwanda gather pace, we'll ask whether Paul Kagame is likely to hold on to his role as President. After that, we'll hear a report from Helen Worrell about the trial of the former Khmer Rouge prison chief in Cambodia. Even though he didn't receive a life sentence, he will be effectively in prison for the rest of his life. And we'll finish the show by looking at Louisiana, which in the last few weeks has been in the headlines for the BP oil spill. But we'll be looking at the marshlands of the area and why there's a bigger environmental problem. I'm joined in the studio by David Blair, the FT's Middle East and African news editor. And later, we'll be talking to Harvey Morris from New Orleans. But first, let's kick off with Cameron and his PR campaign in India. I'm joined on the line now by the FT South Asia Bureau Chief, James Lamont, who's in Delhi and has been following the Prime Minister's trip. James, thanks very much for joining us. Very nice to be with you, Tom. In terms of the, the way in which the Cameron trip has been viewed in India, what sort of impact has it had? Because it's had massive play in the UK. I believe this is the biggest official visit uh, to India by a UK delegation since independence. It's 1947. So how has it been received in India? Um, It's been received well in India. Um, I think uh, the Indians are very impressed that David Cameron has uh, come here after being in office just 10 weeks. I think the Indians uh, appreciate uh, the overture. I think where they're more cautious is that they're keen that this isn't just a a flush with a new government keen to establish uh, international partners, uh, and particularly amongst uh, fast-growing emerging economies. Um, but that it's something that is sustained and that Mr. Cameron uh, and George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Cheka, uh, do come back regularly. It was intriguing to, to see the delegation before it left because they looked, it looked more like the England football team uh, on, on their way on route to South Africa for the World Cup than a kind of the sort of official delegation that you might expect to see. Because clearly one of, the, one of the main aims of this was, was a trade mission, and yet most of the headlines that David Cameron um, has Uh, garnered from this trip have been about foreign policy, in particular his comments on Wednesday uh, about Pakistan uh, and its its links with terror. They're they're comments that go down very well in New Delhi, but I mean, how's the reaction in in Pakistan been to this? David Cameron came out with the express uh, wish that this was a jobs mission, as you say, a a business mission. Um, And, uh, you know, that's where the focus uh, he probably wanted to lie uh, and, um, you know, he went to Bangalore on his first day to visit various businesses 
uh, in Infosys, the uh, Indian outsourcer, and also Hindustan Aeronautics, which uh, makes aircraft. Um, but uh, almost inevitably, he has strayed um, into the long-standing controversy and the hostility between in India and Pakistan. I mean, in the same week that he has come was this WikiLeaks, uh, where these classified documents were made public about the war in Afghanistan, and particularly Pakistan's role within the region, and um, specifically the role of the spy agency, uh, the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency of Pakistan, and its role. So Mr. Cameron has, has made some remarks about, th about, about this, saying Pakistan tends to look both ways in terms of uh, its response to terror. Now, this, of course, has gone down very well in India because this is what India certainly believes itself, that Pakistan is not serious in cracking down on militancy. So it's gone down very well here. It's not gone down very well in, in Pakistan, and particularly so because the comments were made in India, and that has obviously given them greater potency. I think Pakistan initially reacted really quite angrily, but I think today has subsequently reigned, reigned uh, its response back again uh, because they are, President Zadari is shortly traveling to, to London and uh, plainly he wants to keep that, the relationship between Britain and uh, Pakistan on track. It's a very close relationship. I was going to ask about that, whether there was going to be any sort of diplomatic fallout from the comments. We today were expecting something from Pakistan where they were initially threatening to withdraw their ambassador, threatening to cancel uh, President Zadari's visit to London, and even stop uh, intelligence sharing with the UK. I mean, all of which, those three are all, all serious responses. I mean, they haven't done that. In that same vein, then, will there be concern that the end of the trip may be overshadowed by uh, the decision of, of Sonia Gandhi to pull out of a meeting with, with Mr Cameron? That news has broken today, and uh, it has surprised a lot of people. Uh, the Gandhis are hugely important uh, in India. They are the ruling family. And uh, a number of business leaders have mentioned to me that actually for a new relationship between the UK and India to get off the ground, there has to be a sort of top-level personal engagement between Mr Cameron and Sonia Gandhi and her Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. And also, I should bring into this uh, Rahul Gandhi, who is Sonia Gandhi's son, and who one day is likely to be a prime minister of India. Something plainly seems to have happened that has have made the Gandhis cancel their engagement with Mr. Cameron. There are lots of raised eyebrows, but uh, I think we understand that snub wasn't intended by the Gandhis, but that there is some something, maybe a family matter, maybe an illness, that has kept them from uh, any public or official engagements. Uh, Mrs. Gandhi hasn't been in Parliament for the last two days, and you know, we'll have to wait and see. James, thank you very much for your time. Let's move on to Rwanda and the preparations for the general election on August 9. David, in terms of what we're looking for out of this election, Paul Kagame is obviously an internationally known uh, African leader. Is there any chance that he won't be re-elected? No, uh, we know what the outcome will be. Uh, Paul Kagame will certainly be elected to another seven-year term. Um, if the past is any guide, he's likely to announce that he's won by at least a 90% margin. Um, so there's no doubt about the outcome. What's interesting about this election is the signs surrounding it about a political malaise in Rwanda, um, suggesting that uh, Paul Kagame may be having pretty serious internal problems with his own party, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Now, how are they manifesting themselves in Rwanda? Four of Kagame's critics 
have been murdered in the last six weeks in various African countries. Now, of course, um, all these killings are mysterious. We have no idea who is responsible. Uh, but some of them have been figures who in the past have been pretty senior. Uh, one of them is a former chief of staff of the Rwandan army who was personally quite close to Kagame. Um, so the fact that these people have been disappearing uh, is not a good sign. And within the country, um, the situation has grown more repressive recently. Um, a law which bans what the Rwandans term divisionism and which is designed to prevent inflammatory language of the kind that helped incite the genocide back in 1994 has been used in the belief of Kagame's critics to suppress legitimate criticism of the government. Um, and what, what are they criticising Paul Kagame for? There are a number of areas where he's vulnerable. Um, the first is the authoritarianism of his regime and the uh, the accusation that he doesn't allow sufficient political space for for free expression within Rwanda. And then secondly, his foreign policy, and in particular his continued involvement in Congo, uh, is is very controversial. What What is the, the situation with, with the Rwandan involvement in Congo? And a military offensive against the group that was responsible for the Rwandan genocide and later fled into Congo has been happening now in Congo for some months, um, and it's still happening. Um, the consequence of this offensive uh, has been to displace many hundreds of thousands of people in eastern Congo. The Oxfam figure is that about 300,000 people have been forced from their homes since the beginning of this year. So there is a very serious humanitarian crisis in, in Congo. Uh, and this offensive is being conducted largely at Rwanda's behest. It doesn't necessarily mean that Rwanda is directly involved. It's the Congolese army that's, that's, that's done the bulk of the fighting. Uh, but there's no doubt that, that partially because of Rwandan pressure, uh, an awful lot of civilians are still suffering in eastern Congo. And again, coming back to the, the general election on the 9th, what, what will we be looking out for apart from a, a whopping great majority for Paul Kagame? The question really is just how repressive he will have to be to secure the victory which we all know that he will secure um, and to what extent this election will look like a normal election. Uh, and whether the Western donors who are actually funding this election, including the British, um, have any grounds for um, for making their for making any criticisms or bringing any pressure to bear, my suspicion is that they will find reasons to declare that the election, while not perfect, came up to standard, and uh, and they will carry on much as before. David, thank you. And now to Cambodia. Following the sentencing of Khmer Rouge prison chief Doik for war crimes on Monday, Helen Worrell asks what this first conviction of a senior Khmer Rouge figure means for the people of Cambodia. That was Judge Nil Non sentencing former Khmer Rouge prison chief Doik to 35 years in prison earlier this week. This trial was the first to be held at the UN-backed war crimes tribunal in Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge regime orchestrated the deaths of as many as two million people and was driven from power more than three decades ago. But can a verdict which is delivered so long after an event provide any resolution? The director of the largest Cambodian information archive about the genocide, Yuk Chang, who suffered himself under the Khmer Rouge, thinks it can. There is a possibility to end the impunity and that also that... that Genocide can be and should be prevented because any verdict of any former tribunal cannot restore what we have lost. And that, you know, finally, that the crime once was committed against the people of Cambodia now is being recognized by the court of law, which is very important uh, for many survivors. 
and that any form of punishment that would not be fair. And that it's important also that the court has finally delivered a final judgment so that we can move on with our life. The ability of the court to provide those final judgments is based on its independence, its freeness and its fairness. But there have been suggestions that the court is being influenced by senior Cambodian politicians who are themselves former Khmer Rouge leaders. Sarah Combe, a human rights watch researcher based in Cambodia, has concerns about the way the court operates. The whole formulation of this Cambodian tribunal is problematic, if not flawed, because to place a court of this importance within a judicial system that is still very, very susceptible to political pressure and to financial incentives and to corruption makes it problematic from the start for it to be able to act in an independent and unbiased way. However, Andrew Cayley, the court's co-prosecutor, says he had no interference from government during the preparation of any trial. In fact, he sees the presence of Cambodian lawyers within the court as a vital justification for the $150 million spent on the tribunal by UN donors. I think one of the reasons why the money is well spent here is not just that we are having these investigations and trials of absolutely appalling events that happened 30 years ago and thus reinforcing the view that there can be no impunity for these kinds of crimes, but we are also, unlike the ICC, unlike the ICTY or the ICTR, we are building capacity. We are building legal capacity in this country. And long after I am gone, I hope that the legacy that we leave behind, not just in this prosecution office, but amongst uh, the judges and the investigating judges here, um, and indeed the court administration, the way a court is, is run, will remain with the Cambodian people. I mean, we are dealing with intelligent, decent people, and they are learning lessons, and I see that every day. The next trial, which involves the four most senior still-living members of the regime, is due to start early next year. On the Doik verdict, opinions among Cambodians are mixed. <laughs> This woman lost her whole family during the Khmer Rouge era and says there is no justice. A Cambodian human rights activist was more sanguine. Even though he didn't receive a life sentence, he will be effectively in prison for the rest of his life. And so in that regard, it's acceptable because as long as it's not um, possible for him to walk the street as a free man, even for one hour, it's acceptable to me. Thank you, Helen. And to our final topic today, Louisiana. Harvey Morris joins us on the line now from New Orleans. Hello there, Hello, Harvey. Hello, Tom. Has the, the oil spill actually overshadowed the work that needs to be done to repair the marshlands, or has it had the reverse effect, Harvey, actually sort of concentrated people's minds that there is another environmental uh, disaster waiting down the road for the, the area of Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi? In a way, it's highlighted a bigger problem but that may be short term. I think once the, the immediate oil crisis is over, this wider issue of the loss of the marshlands, which actually is not a big headline grabber and never has been in the rest of the United States, may fade away again because it's, it's a problem that's going to require an awful lot of money. And the question is, who's going to pay for it? Why are the marshlands, why is this particular area of marshlands so significant and so important to the region? 
various functions. Obviously, it's got a very thriving fishing industry, as we know only too well um, in the aftermath of the oil spill. It provides hurricane protection for New Orleans because it's, it's a wide, low-lying area which goes 100 miles south of the city. Um, and the more it's damaged, the more powerful and the more um, destructive are any hurricanes that come in. And also, you have to think about the channel of the Mississippi, which is a big shipping channel, um, and runs right through that area. And it's the Mississippi itself is, is one of the problems, or the way in which the Mississippi has been levied over the years. That's prevented water naturally flooding the marshland, and that's leading to its gradual destruction. What can be done in the short term um, to prevent this erosion? Uh, not a great deal in the short term. There was a plan that came out a few years back called the 2050 plan, um, and that has various proposals, one for cutting an artificial channel through the marshes, which would spread water um, across some of the flatlands. One of the problems is that there are lots of competing interests in, in this area. There's the oil industry, there's the fishing industry, there's the shipping industry. To get them all to agree, let alone to raise the money, will, will be a large part of the task. People are saying that the marshlands could be completely done away with by the end of the century. What would the place look like after that? One of the jokes that you sometimes hear is that you'll soon be able to buy beachfront property in New Orleans, uh, which is currently 70 miles, 100 miles from the sea. And what if it's, I mean, you spoke before about the fact that there was no real, dis, no real agreement over what, um, uh, who should pay for what. This has been highlighted by what we've seen since April 20 and, and, and the disaster in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Has that given any real impetus or, as you, as you sort of suggested right at the start, is this an issue that is just now going to be tooked away? Certainly the oil companies bear responsibility. I mean, one, one of the key problems in the marshes is that for getting on for a century, certainly the last 80 years, um, oil companies who are doing inshore drilling and, and land drilling in the marshes have dug about 10,000 miles of canals to accommodate their pipelines. Now, some of these pipelines have, have now been long abandoned, but the damage is already done. And once you cut a channel in the marsh and you have boats moving through regularly, even the, even the wake from boats can destroy significant um, proportions of this very, very soft, muddy, silty land. Harvey, thank you very much for that. That's it for this week from the World Podcast. It's been a very interesting discussion. All that's left is to say thank you to David in the studio, James in Delhi and Harvey in New Orleans and Helen for her report on the Khmer Rouge. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 